Okay, we're gonna, I'm going to read in three different portions. And then uh, we'll just, uh, as God leads, go into detail about those. This is in John, the fourth chapter. And remember here, this is where Jesus met, walked, some believe, like well over 20 miles one way uh, to meet this one woman at the well. And that's the background here. And I'll just read, uh, well, in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, when, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. He had, it was necessary then for him, and notice that it says it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. Samaria was a place where, where the Jews, especially those of the legal covenant, those legalistic Jews, they despised the area of Samaria because Samaria was where the Jews would marry the unsaved. And, and so the Samaritans were part Jew and part whatever else they were. And the Jews couldn't stand them. But he had a need to go to Samaria. He had a need. Notice that. It's so amazing when we think about it. His, he, God who was loved, had, had this tremendous need uh, in love to function in grace. Then he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Pretty hot. There came a woman of Samaria to get some water, to draw water. And then Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy some supplies, some meal, some meat. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask of me, which am a woman of Samaria? In other words, what she was saying, because then, back, even back then, till Jesus raised women, women back to their proper place. Boy, if we could get that in our society right now. Only Christ can, can put men and women in their proper place. He never left it up to them. It's, it's nothing they can do to rebel or to protest or anything. It's only something that God could do. But she was a woman. And she was surprised that he, not only uh, being a man, but a Jew, would talk to her because not only was she a woman, but she was a Samaritan. And why do you ask me, she said, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's putting it lightly. Jesus answered and said unto her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that said to you, give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. And that's why he came there. The woman said unto him, Sir, you don't have anything to draw with. The well's so deep, and you don't have anything to draw out that living water. Are you greater, notice that, are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. Jesus answered and said unto her, 
Whosoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Notice that? We're going to look at that word, thirst. They're going to thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will be in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't thirst anymore. Neither, neither that way I won't have to come here again to do that. Jesus said unto her, go call your husband. Now he's going after something in her with his love and his grace, to, to which no one else could do at that previous time in her whole life, and neither could she do anything about what she was thirsting for and what the enemy was doing in her. We're going to see that clearly this morning. He said, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said unto him, well, you said the truth. You don't have a husband. You have had five husbands. In your thirst for satisfaction, you have gone after five different husbands. And they never could meet your need. They never could. And the woman, and, and he whom you do have right now, is not your husband either. That you said the truth. The woman said unto him, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Thank You know, I thank God. Listen, and I just want to say this right now. I thank God that you and I, in a local assembly that's functioning under the headship of Christ, we can experience all that he is right where we are. I don't have to go to a specific place to get a really extra special blessing. I don't have to do that, of course. That is what the system will tell you. Uh, and you have to go to a specific place because the Jews back then, they had to go to Jerusalem because that was the center and function of all that went on. And so they would go there and get the truth and then they would go back to their areas. It's no longer that way, thank God, for us. We don't have to go to get rest, to get an extra special bless blessing because we have Christ in us and, and that's what's being taught hopefully in all of us as we learn and we all grow in grace about the truth that is ours that's presented to us in a local assembly in God's government. And that's what she was saying. She was saying, in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Hmm? We can worship him right here and right now and experience him in the most incredible way because he did it for us as individuals. You don't have to go to a specific place. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you will neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Notice, and this is what he's saying to her. And this is explaining her thirst and going after five husbands. You worship, you know not what. We know that we worship. We know that we worship. Jesus is including all those that are in him, that, that, have, that are following him at this particular place. Not in yet, but will be in John the 14th chapter and the 17th verse, which will be fulfilling Acts the second chapter. But here, he said, we know what we worship. And Jesus is leading and teaching those Jews in kingdom teaching that they're to worship the Father 
and that that worship comes through him. For salvation is of the Jews, meaning salvation was first given to the Jews when he called out Abraham in Genesis, the 12th chapter. And again in the 17th chapter of Genesis, he called them out. And so salvation is of the Jews. And of course, they rejected him in John 1.11. But as many as would receive him, that's John 1.12. And that's why the church began in Acts, the second chapter, not the 9th, 13th, 22nd, or 26th chapter, as some would tell you, like the, the hyper-dispensationalists will, will tell you. No. The church began to be Jews because they all, in Acts, the second chapter, heard the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, those Jews, and they all heard it in their own language where they were scattered. For salvation is of the Jews, he said. But the hour comes and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father, what, in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And then you go on and you see the rest of the beauty of what happened as a result of that woman leaving that pot that could never fill her thirst. She left that and then went to tell others about someone who not only knew what she was like and her ruin and her desolation, but that loved her and gave her grace. Now we're going to see the seventh chapter here. Again, in the seventh chapter, we see this again here in the seventh chapter, and we follow it all the way through here. In the 32nd verse, it says, the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, Christ. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, and boy, I wish we could get this one straight, all of us, by his love that functions through grace. Yet a little while am I with you. Yet a little while, we have a little while on this earth. I am with you. And of course, to never leave us nor forsake us. Ever. Ever. And he has to show us the, dif the difference between the things that we thirst for. Like there's a thirst for knowledge, but, but if it's not Christ and it's not a, an experience in intimacy, then that's something that's never going to be fulfilled. Never. Never will. We shared that, I believe it was, it was yesterday and, and in some part. And then, of course, I believe it was another time last week, which I can't remember. He said, Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Where will he go that we won't find him? Will he go into the dispersed among the Gentiles, the Greeks, the all unsaved, and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this, that he said, you will seek me and you won't find me, and where I am, there you cannot come. See? In the last day, that great, great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, a thirst, let him come unto me, because boy, oh boy, if we don't, when we thirst, if it's not him that we seek, oh boy, what would be the means and the motive of even our seeking? And so here it says again, let him come unto me and drink. 
See, it's receiving. He's not going to use natural intellect. He's not going to allow the study of the scriptures to be something that we think we can do apart from him and apart from intimacy. That's why it says it again in Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter, 9 and 9, verse 13. Through much study, there's a weariness of the flesh. It wear you out because it doesn't have to do with intimacy. So you go to other sources to try and find what you can only get through Christ, through intimacy, being taught in the local assembly. You're not doing it yourself. None of us are. None of us are, but that, the place that that does take place is in a local assembly in God's specific order. And we don't go outside that because when we do, we begin to thirst, but it isn't the right kind of thirst. It isn't the right kind. It's the kind the enemy will, will begin to guide us with. He said, he that believes on me in 738, as the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water, but this he spoke of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which they that would believe on him would receive. Now that was going to be future because he was the fullness of the Spirit the whole time he walked the face of the earth. And then when he would be crucified, he would send down the Holy Spirit to form the church and bring all those truths into a proper experience. And that again happened and began in Acts, the second chapter. But here, he says, out of your body, your belly will flow the rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on him should, future, receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. He had to suffer, go to the cross, glorify the Father, okay, and then the Holy Spirit could be sent down. And that's what he spoke of. Now, I want us to look at the word belly here. Belly. And this is what we're going to look at. This is where the Holy Spirit would take this truth and bring it out again in a preponderance of all these scriptures together. And thank God, all scripture is given by the inspiration God breathing on them in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, not just the Pauline epistles, but all scripture, and that's why we need that. This is what he said, and this is what he was bringing out in Philippians, the third chapter. He said, brethren, in verse 17, be followers together of me, and then he meant this in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, as he was following and being led by Christ. And mark them which walk, so as you have us for an example, for a type. When you get your proper examples in a proper local assembly, that's where you get it. You don't try and go off and try and figure things out on your own because then you're going to be out there, especially young people getting out there, think they're going to accumulate a bunch of sources and come up with things, going to get into some serious trouble. Very serious trouble because the enemy knows it. There's areas where God, truth has not reached us experientially yet. And that's the area the enemy can go after and deceive us through ignorance and then even through pride. So he said, follow that, follow, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which, which walk so as you have, and they're like, they govern their lives as an example, as a type. 
Verse 18, for many walk, it says, many walk, many allow their lives to be governed. Listen, of whom I have told you often and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So listen, as long as we thirst after things that aren't Christ himself, as long as we thirst after something other than intimacy with Christ, it's the flesh that's doing it. And the flesh we know in Romans 8, verse 7, is the enemy of Christ in us. <laughs> and that's what the enemy uses in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 25, outside of the teaching of 2.24, to oppose us. And he'll do it by causing us to seek knowledge. But then God will use it to humble us, to humble us, to break us, and to cause hunger that only the intimacy of his love through grace can meet that need that we cannot meet ourselves. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. We know in John 10, 10a, the thief comes what? To steal, to kill, and destroy. Now, he can't touch the position of the believer in Christ, but he goes after the experience. Listen, he goes after the experience. He does. He goes right after it. He wants to destroy a proper experience. I'm gonna, yeah, boy, wish you'd say, listen, he hates you and I in Christ. He hates men and women that function in their proper image in Christ because man is the image of God, the proper image brought in through Jesus Christ, and he hates it. He will do everything he can to destroy it experientially because he cannot touch it in 1 John 5, 18 there. The wicked one touches us not. That's position. Whose end is destruction, listen to this, whose God, they that they worship, is their belly. Notice that? Their belly and whose glory is in their shame. Whose, who mind earthly things. But our lifestyle is in heaven from where also we look for the Savior. We're continually looking and receiving that intimacy. The Lord Jesus Christ, who eventually will change our vile, vile body at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, to 17, which is brought out in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, talking about incorruptible. It's not immortal, it's incorruptible. The, this corruption must put on incorruption, and that's the physical body that's in the grave sleeping, while those whose spirit has returned in, in Christ, they return to God who gave it in Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7. Those that aren't saved are right now in hell with their dead bodies in the grave, which eventually will be reunited with them <laughs> at the great white throne judgment in Revelations 20, 11 to 15. But, but who will change our vile bodies that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. If you want to know what that's like, you have to read John the 20th chapter and see what, what that body will be like. According to the work and why, whereby he is able. You see, all his ability towards us is in grace. As a matter of fact, the only place his love, his intimacy flows through, it's grace. We're not earning it, we're not trying to dig for it and learn it like that. We're, trying, we're going after Christ. When we go to the Bible, we're going after intimacy. We don't get, want to get just a bunch of knowledge that will lift us up 
like a smokescreen and pride and be a neophyte in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6. For who will change our vile body that will be fashioned like unto his glorious body, whereby, according, he is able to subdue all things unto what? Himself. What does that mean? He wants to subdue us in every single area in his desire for the depth of his love and intimacy that can only come through grace. Listen, to understand this, this Bible's got nothing to do with with, uh, natural intellect. It has destroyed young people, young men that I know in Burleson, Texas. It's destroyed them. Their natural intellect, trying to take the scriptures and natural intellect to lift them up. But they fall into the condemnation of the devil. And again, in 1 Timothy 3, 6, it's called pride. Notice it's belly. Belly here in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19 is a metonym. And you can look that word up. It's a metonym. And the Greek word is koilia. K-O-I-L-I-A. Koilia. And it's from koilos, which is K-O-I-L-O-S. Koilos. And it means the heart. Listen to this. The heart. The very center, the very soul, the thought, the feeling, the choice, which has to do with the will. Do you remember why God sent the flood and why only eight went into the ark, which was a type of Christ? Because he said the thought, purpose, desire in man is only evil continually. In Genesis 6, verse 5, in Genesis 8, verse 21, that's what he said. It's only evil continuously. That's all it will be. Every thought, every feeling, every desire, every choice with that will being unsubmitted is, this, is, is what this will lead to, that belly. And that's what Jesus was teaching the woman. He was saying, you're thirsting, but this is the place where you're thirsting from. It's called the lust of the flesh. That happened as a result of receiving that fallen nature in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Brought out again in 1 John 2, verse 15. And this is where young people especially, and older ones too, love not the world. Yes, okay, but neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world and those things, the love of the Father won't be in their experience. Why? Because what you will thirst after outside of the intimacy of God's love through Christ in grace by the power of the Holy Spirit, the only thing that you will is you will constantly never be satisfied because lust is insatiable. Now here, when Jesus was saying it to the woman at the well, in 4 verse 14 and down through, she left her pot, no longer having to try and fill a need through lust patterns. Five husbands, and even a sixth one wasn't doing it. She was continuing to thirst, meaning those lust patterns were continuously active until she would meet Christ. Now, belly, here again in John 4.14 and 7.38, belly. Out of his belly, he said in 7.38, he that believes on me keeps on receiving. And you know to believe on him, that has to do with dependence, right? And you know that has to do with submission of the will, right? And that has to do with a continual, constant, continual submission to the will of God. And when I don't understand the precise teaching of the Word of God, 
in its beautiful clarity, then the only thing I can operate in is an empty pot. An empty pot. I'll go to a well, I won't have anything to draw. But I'll still be, those lust patterns will still be active in me. And one of them, and this is why young men in Christianity need to be very careful once they're in Christ, that we have to be very careful, the lust for knowledge. The lust for knowledge. Very, very key here. Very key. That's why this, the only proper place to function in a proper image is being taught in a local assembly. It's, something, it's not something that the local assembly gives. It is something that only Christ could give, but where it is experienced is in a local assembly. And if, if you want to understand that, you have to read the first three chapters of Ephesians. Then you get right into where it's to take place in the fourth chapter. And when those three chapters aren't the proper experience, then there won't be a proper local assembly. And then if there's not, there won't be proper relationships in the fifth chapter. There won't be. You won't know how to deal with your children because you couldn't even deal with husbands and wives. They couldn't even deal with it in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. In the sixth chapter, they won't be able to do it with their kids. And then they go into spiritual warfare like that and wonder why they're obliterated and wiped out, and we all don't have to wonder. The belly, this is what Jesus was saying to the woman and saying to these right here, right in the face of the Pharisees, right in the face of the legalists, out of the innermost of man's nature. And what is that? The part that craves. See, I can be a young person in Christianity and I can crave knowledge because I want to be just like the one that gives it. Yeah, but now you're out of your place. You are far out of your place because in 1 John 2, 12 to 14, there are babes and young men and spiritual fathers. And we're all equal in Christ in terms of our salvation, but in terms of our growth and maturity, by his pure grace and truth, we're not. I want to make that crystal clear. It's that natural nature, that part that craves, the part that is this natural man's God, we said, we saw it. Making knowledge apart from intimacy, Again, I, I remember sharing this just recently. This happened in the early 70s and 80s where this teaching came in where doctrine was the whole thing, but it was separate and almost to the exclusion and nonsense to think that you needed intimacy with Christ. That's what was happening back there in the days of Lennox. Saw it. Thank God God kept me by his pure grace, by constantly telling me and making it real that there was a need I had. I had a water pot, but I couldn't fill it. There's nothing I could do about it. And if I tried, I could only do it with the lust patterns. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in 1 John 2 and verse 16. Those things on their way to pass away, thank God. But that's the man's God in his fallen condition. You see, that's the condition of the flesh still. The natural man who's dead, trying to work its way back into 
the Christian's experience, and that's why we need Hebrews 4.12, separating self-conscious living in the flesh, empty water pot, versus Christ who was all and in all in Colossians 3.11, and there has to be a separation, and that goes into the truth, that there has to be separation. That's brought out in, in 2 Corinthians 6. 14 to 17. That is brought out clearly, and that is why we need to take in Ephesians 6 and verse 17 the sword of the Spirit in spiritual warfare to separate those two and to keep them separate. But that's his God in his fallen condition. Notice that. Their God that's in their fallen condition. Listen to what this is. Listen to what the Holy Spirit was saying through the Apostle Paul in Romans. And here it is. And I'll just read this scripture here. This is, this is uh, Romans 16, verse 17. He says this, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions. That's the flesh. That's Christendom entering into the purity of an intimate relationship with Christ and then trying to use scriptures to justify it, which caused divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching which you have learned and avoid them. For they, they that are such serve, and that serve means worship, not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, their own lust patterns. They have a lust for knowledge. That has to be dealt with you get into some serious trouble. You start wandering on your own. But their own belly and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the humble, the simple. You see? For your obediences come abroad unto all. I am glad therefore on your behalf, but I would have you to, what? To be wise unto that which is good and what? Harmless, harmless. Listen to me. Listen to that word because that's the proper word. If you see simple in translations, cross it out. It's harmless. And harmless concerning evil. Right? What is that? Now that verse there again has to do again. And you can see how it flows in Romans the 12th chapter. When you see how it flows, you'll see it. You can start in verse 1. But this is what it says. In 12.21, at the end of that 12th chapter, in its context, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I would have you wise unto that, which is what? Really, harmless is, is, is very good. And very, very humble, humble unto evil. Now again, this is what Jesus was teaching. This is what he's teaching us. It, he's teaching us this. That here in Romans 16, verse 18, that men having fallen from God prior to being saved, now still do we have the flesh in us in Romans 8, verse 9, but that we, it's still in us. It's not one naturism, it's not erraticism, it's not the exchange life, the lies of that wrong, evil teaching. That make out, that, that do away with the responsibility of the individual to Christ and their own intimate relationship with Him and using the devil to blame Him for everything, because that's what the one nature is does. And if you quote enough scriptures, you'll make them go away. Nonsense. It's nonsense. 
that man having fallen from God, fallen from the apprehension, listen to this, of a love that satisfies. You see, lust is insatiable. It will never satisfy. Never. For you to go outside a local assembly and think you can do it on your own, I'm going to tell you, it's not God's order. You, if you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and go right to the 14th chapter in the 40th verse. God does all things decently and in order, and what's his order? It's a local assembly. That's where you get fed. That's not to say that you shouldn't hunger and thirst after him, but it should be done in the right way, because if you do it the other way, you will do it apart from the body eventually, because you can do it yourself, and you don't need the body anymore. Boy, have we seen that one, haven't we, Mike? We have certainly seen that one. I'm going to tell you, we've seen it first in ourselves. I'm going to make that crystal clear. I know I have, and I believe Mike too. And, and, and we've seen it in others. It's only his love, the intimacy of his love, that satisfies. And that's what he's trying to teach the woman at the well. You have five husbands. They're not doing it. And you're still thirsting. You're still thirsting, but it's lust that's insatiable. Five don't do it. Listen, as Solomon, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Read it. All the money and all the women couldn't satisfy him. He had to get to the place of Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter, and 9 to 13, that one shepherd Jesus Christ over each individual. And what are we like when we don't have a shepherd who intimately desires us and wants us? If the enemy can't stop you, and knowledge truly is the first step. Yes, it is. It's still grace, though, in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. There's no knowledge without grace. There's no grace without proper knowledge. It's just the way it is. Again, that's why, again, in John 1, 16, it's grace upon grace, not truth upon truth. Truth is one, that's Christ. He's everything. And when he's not, when he's not actively, with a submitted will, my everything, in the intimacy of his love for me, in the exchange of that love that I, he loved me first with, back with him, then I'm going to take my water pot that's empty in my experience and go find somewhere else to fill it. Just like the prodigal had to learn in Luke, the 15th chapter, in those 16 to 32 verses. Now here's what it says. Man has fallen from the apprehension of a love that satisfies and become someone who questions his love. The enemy causing you to question God's love lately? Is he questioning that? And has that question that's based upon a lie got into, got into and, and makes you think that now you have to care for yourself and do something about it? Yeah, it has got you into what? Self-care. And then it goes into labor. Did you know that there is labor in the, in, in the Lord, but it's rest too, by the way. It's never without rest. Into labor. And then ultimately lust, a lust pattern. He refrained from doing. What did Adam do? 
What did Christ do? What, what are we to do? Once we receive Christ, what do we do? We refrain from doing. There's no labor in resting in his love. But we're dependent. And boy, that's the thing that we are so ignorant of. It is the thing that motivates us in everything. When we even think we're doing good, when we think we're going to do good to seek truth some other places. I'm going to tell you, that's the reason why it's not a will that's yet dependent on him for everything. And that would be, and that's true in any of us because we have the flesh in us in Romans 8, 9, but thank God we're not of it. There's no labor but, all, but complete dependency. He is teaching us like he taught, he's teaching the woman, like he was teaching those here in the fourth and seventh chapter of the Gospel of John. He was teaching them what? Without me, in 15, 1 through 5, you can't do anything. Listen to me. Without resting in the intimacy and desire of my love for you, which will actuate pure love back, without that, you can do nothing. You will go from one husband to another from one wife to another, from one drug to another, from one drink to another, all by the enemy in John 10, 10a, seeking to steal, to kill, and to destroy. To destroy. Without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. He has to make man dependent on himself. Just be satisfied with where you are. Be satisfied with those teachers that he gave you, young people. Be satisfied with that. Don't go off willy-nilly on your own because that's what will lead you. And God will even use that to bring you back to your proper place. He will. But don't go off like that. We can't lead ourselves and make that crystal clear. Proper leading comes through Christ in a, in a proper local assembly where Christ is taught as the head and experienced through a submitted will. He had to make him, and he continually makes us dependent on himself, and making, and when he makes that dependence to be in our experience, there's never any trouble. Did we hear that? Remember what Job said in the midst of his trials? Because his will was not yet submitted to what he knew. Listen to that. His will was not yet submitted to what he thought he knew in its fullness, but he didn't. He didn't know it. He said in Job 5.7, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. See, that's the flesh still that's in us, by the way, that some would try to eradicate through wicked teaching. He said in 14.1, man that is born of a woman, is of short days and full of trouble. But you know what? God was still teaching him in the midst of his trial in 23 and verse 10 that when you go through this trial, it's his the desire, the intimacy of his love for you and your experience that he brings you into that trial where he shows you you can't do anything by yourself. What makes you think you can do it apart from the, from the body of Christ? Because that's pride. Who profane us is me, and even in ignorance, placing myself above the body. Above it. That's what he was teaching him. He was teaching him. 
that I'm going to come through is gold. And gold has to do with God himself. And to experience it, now it's silver. Now it's redemption. And he had to teach him. In 23.12 of Job. Yep, guess I'm going to esteem his word. What is his word? It's his Christ. It's the intimacy of, of the desire of the eternal love of God. I will esteem that above my necessary food. Listen to me, folks. You know what that means? Above every detail of life. Above everything. Jobs, schedules. I don't care what it is. It doesn't matter. That's what it says. Because then when he gets me to Job 23 and verse 12, he gets me to 23 and verse 14. He performs the thing that he requires. The woman couldn't do it at the well. You and I can't do it either. We'll end up with an empty pot going right back to those things like that, that we hate. Proverbs 26, 11, 1 Peter 2, verse 22 would be like the dog that goes right back to the vomit because something's got to fill that pot. Something has to. And boy, the enemy has it waiting. But with dependence on him, with the intimacy of his love through grace, remember we shared the other day what his love was. His love is even more than love. It is grace. And, and what is grace? It's love in the midst of evil. Overcoming it. Going down underneath it. And that's why it says in Deuteronomy 33 and verse 27, his eternal arms are underneath the bottom of the most vilest bottom we could get to. When we're in Christ, he's there holding us up. Whether we recognize it or not. And that's why we don't go by emotions and feelings. They don't, good ones or bad ones, aren't indicative of a proper image. It's who we are in Christ. It's what he says and what his thoughts are towards us and not our thoughts and what our thoughts and emotions are towards him. There's no trouble there. When we function in Christ in intimacy, we're stress-free. There's no false burdens. Oh, how the enemy, through those insatiable lusts, those false Burdens, there's no distress. But making that individual man or woman dependent means is a means of realizing the intimate loving care of his maker and preserver every single moment. And listen, when it is not him whose only love through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit is the thing that satisfies us and keeps out the insatiability. Isn't it amazing? We can even experience the satisfaction of the Father. Even that has its propitiation. For we, we, get, we experience it through Christ, not, of course, <laughs> like the Father and Son and their deity, nor will we ever, but we'll have it in Christ without any question about it. And, and that's why it says it'll take eternity for us to show it to us. Because <laughs> he inhabits it in Isaiah 57, verse 15. But he suited us for eternity by giving us, in 1 John 5, 11, eternal life, and that life is Christ. And we don't get stuck in the lust of time and get in those vicious circles. And we're going to close with this. Because when it's not... The desire, listen to me, when, and I'm listening with you when I say that. When I say listen to me, I'm God saying to me, listen to me, <laughs> just so you know that. 
when, when it was stated by the Holy Spirit in Genesis 6, 5 and 8, 21, he said, the whole thought, purpose, desire, and plan of man is only evil continually. It's nonstop. It won't stop. That's why he crucified us. He couldn't change us. Jeremiah 30, verse 12, the wound was incurable, wasn't going to change, so he crucified us in Romans 6, 1 through 6, gave us a new life. Old things are now, thank God, not in the process of passing away. That's positional truth. But are passed away. Now that comes into the experience in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Behold, all things are new. Then when they're new, I don't go back to the insatiable lust patterns. I rest in the satisfaction of God's love. Zephaniah 3 verse 17. God himself is resting in his love. What is that? The love of his son who propitiated him and then thereby allowing the father to give the son to be the substitute for us, whereby and only thereby we can be properly reconciled to him. He said, every thought is only evil continually. Now here's evil, here is evil in the Hebrew, in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. It's ra, R-A, ra. And it's from ra-a, R-A-A, ra-a. And it means to spoil. Do we hear that? means to spoil. And literally, by breaking to pieces, oh my God. Oh, how the enemy hates the believer from functioning in the reality of the image that God, that God through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit has made them to be. He wants to smash it and break it to pieces experientially because he can't touch the position. And that's what that evil means. By breaking to pieces, to make, to make or associate as a friend. He'll lie to you and tell you you need this lust pattern. I'm your friend. I will give you this. I will give you this as a friend because I want to devour you through that lust, those, through those insatiable lusts like he was doing to the woman at the well until she met her Savior. And then she left her pot. She left it to devour that's 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety upon him. Cast it on him. You're, are you anxious? you fearful? Cast it on him. And it's all at once. It says, think of every single thing that could cause you anxiety and bring in a separation from the intimacy of his love in your experience. Think about it all and cast it on him. Cast it on him. Because he cares for you. What is the care? The depth and intimacy of his love. For you as an individual, for me as an individual. Why? Because we have an adversary. He walks about never resting, never sleeping, knowing everything about us in the flesh, knowing when, where, and how to come at us. As soon as we give place, Ephesians 4, 27, as soon as the tiniest little place, and he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy in the experience. Because he wants to devour. Because we have an enemy that walks about Seeking whom he may rip to pieces. That's what it means in the Greek, by the way. To tear to pieces and swallow down whole. Details of life, these thought patterns and reasonings that aren't from him, these projections against faith, faith, obedience, and dependence upon him. We see that in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. See it very, very clearly there. So he does it to devour so that we feed and graze on the evil of the lust pattern. He wants to be a false shepherd. That's why a lot of this false teaching. So that you graze on these things. 
and never are satisfied, never experience the depth and intimacy of his love. To feed and graze with evil intent. Boy, without our shepherd, experientially, do we have life and abundant life? Evil. Now that's the word there, just in, just in a little bit this morning. Uh, evil uh, in the Old Covenant, the Hebrew, is ra. Now here it is in the Greek. In the Greek, it's kakos. Kakos is what Lucifer became when he fell and became Satan. God's adversary and opponent, now listen to this, and because God made man in his image, not an angel, he wants to break that to pieces. Can't do it positionally, comes after experientially. He hates the image of God in you and I. It's a constant reminder of his defeat. It's a constant reminder of where he's headed. And we're to be in nothing terrified in Philippians 1, 28. Nothing, 27 and 28. But to endure these sufferings in the 29th verse of Philippians uh, chapter 1. You see, it's kakos. That's what Satan became in Ezekiel 28 verse 15. That's brought out in Isaiah 14, 9 to 17. His five I wills. The unsubmitted will in all these areas. Every area that my will isn't submitted. Boy, oh boy, it becomes a potential for the enemy to occupy in the experience. Bad teaching, no teaching, no submission to what I know to be true. Placing myself above fellowship, above the body of Christ. Above the fact that as a young person, I'm, I'm a continual, continual pupil that needs to be taught. And that's brought out in Hebrews 13, 7, and Hebrews 13, 17. Teachers that are our guides. They don't rule over us. They lead us as guides to him who does want to rule over us with the intimacy and depth of his love for us. So kakos is his intrinsic evil. And that word means worthless. Worthless. His will became an eternal state separated from him and unchangeable and thereby became worthless. Well, all those husbands and all that water that woman was seeking, was it? Didn't it? Wasn't it always worthless? Because it couldn't do what only Christ could do? Worthless. Intrinsically, Satan is kakos. Worthless. Intrinsically. Whereas paneros in Ephesians 5 and verse 16 refers to its effects. Poneros, evil in active opposition to God's divine good. Then, in Isaiah 5.20, they will call evil good and good evil. <laughs> they will make themselves good and God to be evil. You ever get any of those thoughts? Somehow God's doing something to you because? <laughs> that has to do with who we are in Christ. That's the depth of the intimacy of his love. Everything he went through prior to the cross and then on the cross and how he ever intercedes for us even now. No, poneros refers to effects. That's subjectively. The enemy wants us to not have an object but to be very subjective in these lust patterns. It means depraved. Sweetie, what's trying to convince you? You're depraved. 
Because really, you have an object as far as your salvation. But you know what? Look at what you're really like. Look at what you're really like. Why? He's injurious. He, he wants to cause intense injury and pain. It, this word, ponoros, is from a derivative of the Greek word ponos, P-O-N-O-S. And it means toil. Toil. And it, by implication, it means to cause anguish and pain. <laughs> Poneros, hurtful. Evil in effect or influence. It differs from kakos, Satan's essential character. No. But as well as that Greek word, sapros, S-A-P-R-O-S, sapros, and it means rotten. He, 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 in his own intrinsic, unchangeable character, is rotten and worthless. That's what he wants to convince you and I in the experience with an unsubmitted will. That's why he'll offer the things of the world. You see what he did to Jesus, right? He offered him all these things in Matthew, the fourth chapter, Luke, the fourth chapter. I just got news for us. Was Jesus on trial or was the enemy? Who was in control there? Was it the enemy? No, we even see in Matthew 4, verse 1, it was the Holy Spirit that led him to face him, to show him his defeat, that he has won and made us in him with a submitted will to be more in Romans 8, 37 than conquerors. Because he did it in Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He led a whole train of captives captive. That's you and I. And then he led all those captive all those evil, that evil demonic army. As we close this this morning, that word sapros is worthless. And literally, morally, which indicates degeneracy. That's, you know, what's the point? You're a degenerate. Am I? That's who I am in Christ? You're a degenerate. See what you do? No, it's just going to the wrong place with an unsubmitted will. But he still loves us and it will never change in Malachi 3.6. He doesn't change. And we said, I think it was yesterday or I don't know when, that he loves us with a love that will never let us go. Hebrews 13.5, I'll never, no, never, no, never in any way ever leave you nor forsake you, ever. Because Jesus Christ in 13.8 of Hebrews is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the Hebrew word, I will never let you go. It's a love that loves us that will never let us go. It's hashak, H-A. S-H-A-Q. It's hashak. It's degeneracy. This word ponoros, that's hurtful, is degeneracy, right? Uh, sapros, I should say, is degeneracy from original virtue. See, the enemy, he wants to get in the experience through a lie and tell you what you're not. Based upon what you are and what you do is what Christ paid for. And of course, we don't live in grace that we can sin in Romans 6, 1 and 15. In Romans 3, verse 8. He fell from his original virtue because he was all, he always, he was complete in, in Ezekiel 28, verse 15. In all his ways of obedience till iniquity was found in him, his will no longer being submitted, he submitted his will to himself. He got very subjective. That's what he wants us to do in our experience. What replaces the intimacy of his love? All these lust patterns. The search for knowledge. Read it again in Ecclesiastes 9. 
through 13. Much weariness is a, much study is a weariness of the flesh, especially when you're trying to do it on your own. And not that you shouldn't in tight in ways, but never apart, never apart. Because God has leaders, honestly, they've been through things, they've been through the bad sources, by the way. They know. Through learning by pure grace and being humbled themselves, they know it. They know it by his pure grace. And that's why they're to lead you. Poneros. Poneros. That's, that's the subjective. See? The subjective will. All right? So that he can objectively injure us. Notice that? To injure us. To seek to what? Steal and what? Kill and destroy. That's why I would have cast down those imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, which has to do with the intimacy of God's love in us through Christ and an intimate relationship that will never come to the end of knowing in Ephesians 3 and verse 19. So we're going to close this right now. Poneros, okay? Passive. Poneros, infectious evil affects us when our will is passive, meaning unsubmitted. Unsubmitted. Then things, then we become ill spiritually. We become diseased spiritually and morally. We become culpable, derelict, vicious. We enter into mischief and malice or guilt. That's what he wants to bring us to. He wants to kill you and I through guilt. Through guilt. And are we in, is there any guilt for us in Christ? Any condemnation, any guilt in Romans 8.1? There's not a peace, not, not any of it. Because all it has to do with is love. God loves us with a love that's never going to let us go, ever. And this is him loving us deeply. And Father, we do thank you for your love, for your deep care. Yes, each one here this morning, and I believe those that are listening, are your treasure in Christ. They're perfect complete in their position in Christ. Not through what they did, not through what I did, but what we all receive. You are perfect. You are loved deeply and intimately by God because he so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever keeps on believing him won't experience the lie of perishing or being destroyed. Father, thank you for so much for the depth of your love and may every thought that we have be the truth that God is for us in Romans 8.31, never against us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.